0: Hello and welcome to Hindsight, Lorena Allen with you. Today to mark Anzac Day, a personal account of the enduring scars of World War I across three generations of one family. Two years ago, historian Alistair Thompson sat down in the National Archives and opened a big fat file titled Repatriation Commission M316. This was the war pension record of his grandfather, Hector, who had served in World War I. Inside the stained brown covers, there were hundreds of documents detailing Hector's medical history, from enlistment in 1914 to his death in 1958. But the files revealed much more than just Hector's life post-World War I. They also gave Alistair a glimpse of his grandmother, Nell, and the key role that she'd played in helping her sick husband before her own sudden and early death. In this program, Alistair Thompson charts his own search for the war story of his grandfather. He is searching for Hector Thompson.
1: When I was a young man, I carried me back And I lived the free life of the rover From the Murray's green basin to the dusty outback I waltzed my Matilda all over Then in 1915 the country said, son, it's time to stop rambling, there's work to be done. And they gave me a tin hat and they gave me a gun and they sent me away to the war.
2: Sometimes you can't write the history that needs to be told. In the early 1980s, I interviewed Australian World War One veterans for my book Anzac Memories, which was about the men's experience of war and return, and how they had lived with the legend of their lives. In the first draft of an introduction to the book, I wrote that my grandfather, Hector Thompson, contracted malarial encephalitis, an inflammation of the brain while serving with the Light Horse in Palestine, and that as a result he was in and out of mental hospital after the war. I only knew about Hector's mental illness forthhand from my mother. My father, David Thompson, had never talked about it with me or my brothers. Dad was appalled by the reference to the mental hospital in my book, and he demanded that I remove it. For most of my father's life, the stigma of mental illness ran deep. Dad insisted that he would never have been accepted into the Royal Military College at Duntroon had they known about his father Hector's illness. I realised my writing had ripped open the scab that had formed across Dad's terrible childhood and unleashed angry, painful memories. So I agreed to change the words in my book from in and out of mental hospital to the more acceptable half-truth that Hector was in and out of Caulfield Repatriation Hospital after the war. In doing so, I prioritised my father's feelings and hoped to repair our fractured relationship. Yet the whole point of the story about my grandfather Hector had been to show that within families, as within the nation, some histories can be told while others are hidden or forgotten. Hector Thompson was born in 1894 and grew up on one of several Thompson family farms around Clydebank near Sale in the southeast Victorian region of Gippsland. Before the war, Hector was described as one of the strongest men in the district. Six foot tall and solidly built, he was an attractive young man. When he went to war in 1914, an anonymous poem lamented his departure.
0: The world is looking cold and grey, just cause Hector sailed away. He carted water, oh, so nice, never had to ask him twice. Florence, neat and sweet and trim, sits and thinks and thinks of him. But that's not all. At the hotel, one can hear a gentle yell. And Hector Thompson is the cause of these, the young Miss Logan's roars. Come back, come back, rose the lament of everyone. But Hector went...
2: Twenty-three-year-old Hector enlisted from Queensland, where he'd been working as a station hand. In August 1916, while serving in Palestine as a driver with the 2nd Light Horse Field Ambulance Unit, he was awarded the Military Medal for helping to rescue wounded men while under heavy fire. Hector's service record also records several charges for the less commendable behaviour that was not uncommon
3: in Australia's Volunteer Army. Disobedience. Ill treatment of a mule ill properly dressed, bringing intoxicating liquor into a hospital, and familiarity with natives.
2: Hector Thompson's war record of bravery and larrikinism exemplifies two sides of the Anzac legend. In 1917, while serving in the Jordan Valley, Hector was struck down by illness. Twelve years later, in 1929, Hector recalled that illness in his application for a repat war pension.
4: I enlisted on 20th of November 1914 in Splendid Health and had no troubles until early in 1917 when I contracted malaria. For some days I saw the unit medical officer but eventually became so ill that I was evacuated to Port Said. During the remainder of my service, the trouble recurred at frequent intervals and necessitated constant treatment. Each malaria attack was accompanied by severe ague, fever and vomiting. I was discharged on 22nd of February 1919 in poor general health and suffered from malarial attacks every week. I was unable to do constant work and just potted about my father's farm. A violent headache accompanied each attack of malaria and these usually brought on feelings of lightheadedness. Dr Campbell of Sale treated me regularly. I always fought against the attacks and tried to work, but one day in 1920 I went to work and was found lying beside the plough, unconscious.
2: In November of 1919, Dr Campbell of Sale, who was the Thompson family doctor, reported that Hector had lost more than six kilograms over the course of six malarial attacks in half a year. The Repatriation Department agreed that Hector's condition was caused by an infection suffered while on service and granted him a 50% war pension. Over the next three years, as the attacks became less frequent and less severe, the REPAT progressively reduced Hector's war pension until it was suspended in August 1922 when Hector failed to attend his annual REPAT medical examination. By that time, there were other more significant changes in his life. He'd inherited a 160 hectare mixed farming property near to the other Thompson farms around Clydebank in Gippsland. In February 1922, he took up residence with his new bride, Nell, in a four-room cottage that they renovated and called Bungeline after an ill-fated local Aboriginal who'd lived in the area. Hector's bride, Nell, was the daughter of an Anglican clergyman who had served in sale when she and Hector were both in their teens. In 1922, Hector probably didn't want his bride to think that he was damaged by the war, so decided not to attend further REPAT medical examinations. But the loss of Hector's pension just a few months after their marriage would become a source of great regret for Nell, as she recalled in a letter to the REPAT in 1929.
1: Bungeline. September the 19th, 1929. Sir, I do not know the name of the medical officer who, some years ago, last examined my husband in connection with his pension, but I very clearly remember the remark he made, which my husband repeated to me. Well, said this medical officer, bad fever has played up with you. Yet the next report that my husband and I received was that the small pension my husband had been receiving had stopped. I wanted my husband to appeal, but he would not do so. And the necessity was not great then as it is now.
2: By 1926, Hector's illness had returned, with unexpected and debilitating symptoms. Hector wrote about his condition in his pension application.
4: In 1926, I had the first definite attack of lapse of memory. My wife was given power of attorney to manage my affairs. It was only then that I realised I'd been ill for a long time because I found I'd neglected many things. My wife will forward a statement containing fuller details and further evidence may be obtained from my brother, Robert Thompson, of Sale and from Mr L.D. Witts, manager of Bank of Australasia, Sale.
2: The Repatriation Department wrote to Bank Manager Mr Witts who replied that he was keen to cooperate.
5: Sale, Gippsland, 7th of August, 1929. Sir, I have only known Mr. Thompson for six and a half years. To me, he appeared normal, though unusually silent always. Until 1925, though apparently in good health, he was absent minded over his business transactions. In January 1926, he called here with a cousin to fix up a most important business transaction. I thought him casual at the time, as he permitted me to act entirely for him. It was over twelve months later I realised he had been so ill that he was indifferent to what transpired so long as he was called upon to use his brains. Ever since early in 1927, Mr Thompson has been a very sick man he completely lost his memory. After some months, he quite regained his memory as his health improved and even worked as usual on his farm. This he should never have attempted, for though he looks strong and well, he will never work again in all probability. The slightest exertion prostrates him. This is a most serious and pitiful case.
2: And in a later pension application in 1939... The Thompson family GP, Dr Campbell, also wrote to the Repat and recalled Hector's first
3: breakdown. Thompson brought into sale some horses to be shod. He was in his working clothes. He did not arrive home that night and next day realised that he was in Melbourne Botanical Gardens. He immediately caught a train back. His memory of going to Melbourne or what he did there was a blank, except that he thought he stayed at a coffee palace. His condition after this was one of complete nervous exhaustion. He would sleep for the greater part of 24 hours, but when awake would talk quite lucidly and cheerfully. He took no interest whatever in the harvest or in his affairs. In
2: 1927, the family GP, Dr Campbell, sent Hector to see Dr Sydney Sewell, who was a prominent Melbourne neurologist renowned for treating veterans with shell shock. Sewell arranged for brain x-rays and conducted other tests, including a test for syphilis, which came back negative. But Sewell could find no abnormality in the brain or spinal fluid, and he reported that he could not be definite about the cause of Hector's condition. Sewell diagnosed that it could have been a psychotic condition due to exhaustion, or perhaps it was a case of a mysterious condition called encephalitis lethargica. An epidemic of encephalitis lethargica had spread throughout the world between 1915 and 1926. Symptoms included high fever and headaches, lethargy and sleepiness, and in extreme cases, patients collapsed into a coma-like state that could last for years. The best-known study of encephalitis lethargica is Oliver Sack's book Awakenings, which was made into a film about a patient who woke from a 40-year coma in 1969 In the 1920s, the cause of the illness was not known. In 1929, Dr Campbell wrote to the REPAT that he agreed with Sewell's diagnosis of encephalitis. But he mistakenly suggested that this condition was caused by an infection resulting from malaria. As the Thompson family doctor, Campbell probably wanted to ensure that Hector received a pension for his debilitating illness. He knew that the REPAT was more likely to pension a man with observable, war-caused physical damage. And he didn't mention Dr Sewell's alternative diagnosis of a psychotic condition due to exhaustion. Hector almost certainly accepted Dr Campbell's mistaken diagnosis, that his ill health was due to some form of brain inflammation labelled encephalitis by the doctors caused by wartime malaria. This was also how his wife, my grandmother Nell, came to understand her husband's illness. And it was malarial encephalitis that became the story whispered in our family oral tradition and passed on to my generation. By now it was Nell who was running the farm and the finances. And with two small boys underfoot and a sick husband to care for, she was desperate.
1: Bungaline, May 15th, 1929.
2: She submitted the new pension claim for Hector.
1: Sir, owing to my husband's constant ill health, we have to employ constant labour. And this year, I'm finding it very difficult to carry on. It is also a great strain not knowing when his loss of memory might occur again. In 1926, my husband suffered from complete loss of memory and was missing from home for two days. I've been told by each doctor who examined him that he must only undertake the lightest of work. But as long as he can carry on, he does so. But this always ends up in a complete collapse. He has been ill again this year and collapsed just at the most busy time on the farm, ploughing and putting in the crops. I had to send him into hospital and to depend on the kindness of my neighbours. I also had the very great expense of having to employ three extra men as well as the help of my brother-in-law and my husband's cousin in the endeavour to get the crops in on time.
2: By late September 1929 the stress was beginning to tell and Nell went with the children to stay with her sister in Holbrook across the New South Wales border, while Hector remained on the farm in Gippsland.
1: Holbrook, New South Wales, September 19th, 1929. Sir, my husband's constant illness and all the worry I've had in connection has caused me to become ill. And I simply had to close my home. My husband is staying with his people and I have come up here to Holbrook to try and recover. My reason for asking for a pension for my husband is because he is unable to work for any length of time without a complete breakdown and I cannot afford to keep a man to work on the farm permanently. Owing to my husband's severe illness, which occasions loss of memory, his business affairs have become very tangled.
2: Nothing in Nell Thompson's comfortable upbringing as a clergyman's daughter had prepared her for the trials of her marriage. Yet as I read Nell's correspondence with the REPAT, I realised she handled the terrible strain caused by Hector's illness with great skill and determination. The REPAT doctors were concerned that they could find no physical causes for Hector's condition. After receiving the report from the neurologist Dr Sewell in August 1929, the REPAT asked Hector to return to Melbourne in November of that year for examination by another nerve specialist, Dr Clarence Godfrey. This was to test whether there was any connection between malaria and loss of memory and neurasthenia. Godfrey was a lecturer in psychiatry at the University of Melbourne, and one of the first in Australia to recognise the significance of Freudian psychology. He examined Hector and reviewed the wartime medical records, which confirmed the malaria. Godfrey then reported to the REPAT
5: on Hector's condition. Early in 1927, Thompson manifested symptoms suggestive of some pathological condition of the central nervous system. Prominent among these were disorientation, amnesia and apathy, diminished power of attention and lessening of initiation. In 1926, Dr. Sewell reduced the diagnosis to post-encephalitis, lethargic signs or to exhaustive psychosis. It must be admitted that the evidence weighs more in favour of the post-encephalitis disorder. The progress of this ex-soldier's incapacity from the time of his discharge is fairly continuous and in examining him I found him extremely candid and apparently truthful. Recommend acceptance as due to war service with an assessment of 75% incapacity.
2: The Repatriation Commission accepted Godfrey's diagnosis and agreed that three linked conditions, one, Postencephalitis encephalitis lethargica, two, cerebral exhaustion, and three, loss of memory, were all war-caused. The REPAT approved a 75% pension. Hector was informed that future medical treatment would be at the Commission's expense, which was a significant saving for the Thompson family. But a few months later, Hector collapsed again. Dr Campbell reported to the REPAT.
3: Sale, Gippsland, 5th of February, 1931. Thompson has got much thinner and looks duller than before. I tried to persuade him to employ a stack builder, but he did not on account of the expense, with the result that he got completely knocked up and thus suffered the failing of memory and developed a semi-comatose condition. He has done no works for some weeks now and is in a very lethargic condition.
2: In February 1931, the Repat sent Hector back to the Melbourne psychiatrist, Dr Godfrey, who wrote a new report about my
5: grandfather Hector's condition. On examination, patient is somewhat dull in mental alertness, markedly different to when previously examined by me a year ago. Mental state prevents a personal investigation into his symptoms as he appears unable to activate his mentality and appears as if in a dream, is now quite incapable of work. Condition may improve in six months' time, but outlook is unfavourable.
2: After this diagnosis, Hector was admitted to the Caulfield Repatriation Hospital. It was at Caulfield that the first doubts about the original diagnosis appear in the medical records. In 1931, 13 years after his discharge from the army, Hector's condition was now being explained according to new medical understandings. Dr Paul Dane had been an Australian army doctor at Gallipoli and in Egypt, and after the war he became interested in neurology and the treatment of shell-shocked veterans. He was an early convert to Freudian psychology. And in 1925, Dane published an article titled The Psychoneuroses of Soldiers which recommended treatment by psychoanalysis. Perhaps not surprisingly, Dane was looking for psychological causes for Hector's symptoms.
5: I can find no evidence in this man's history which would suggest to me an attack of encephalitis. There are no signs of organic disease of the central nervous system, but he is quite definitely an athyroidic type. He's also the typical manic depressive character type and has been all his life. There are occurrences in his military history which point towards slight psychotic trends or character defects. This inherent familial type of mental makeup, plus malarial infection and athyroidism, is sufficient, in my opinion, to account for his present condition.
2: There's nothing in Hector's military records that suggests either psychotic trends or significant character defects. But Dane was not unusual among psychiatrists at this time in explaining mental illness as due to flawed personal character or a degenerate family history. In the absence of definitive physiological or psychological evidence, Dr Dane was speculating about Hector's condition. And his speculations say as much about Dr Dane and the limits of medical understanding as they do about my grandfather Hector. Dane prescribed thyroid treatment and daily douche baths. At first the treatment, or just as likely the hospital rest, seemed to work. Hector gained several kilograms in weight. and In April 1931 he was discharged and went home to Gippsland. But by July that year, Nell reported to the Repat that Hector had collapsed again. After nursing Hector at home for two weeks, she admitted him to the Gippsland Hospital.
1: July 1st, 1931. This state of affairs has been going on for so many years now that I am in great financial difficulties, heavily indebted. I have absolutely nothing to live on except my pension, out of which I have to pay a man 30 shillings a week along with his keep. It is indeed a very serious position, not only for my husband, but for myself and my two children, the youngest of whom is not yet five and the elder one now is six and a half years of age. I am struggling, and I have been so for several years now, as I try to carry on the property with the advice of my husband's brother, who lives 20 miles from me. This year... I've had to borrow on my husband's life insurance to enable me to put in a little crop. I therefore hope that my request for a full pension will be granted. Would you let me know if it would be possible for anyone else to collect our pension? I live ten miles from sale and very often it is over a month before I can get into town.
2: On the 13th of November 1931 Family GP Dr Campbell diagnosed Hector as again suffering cerebral exhaustion and loss of memory. He sent Hector by car for readmission to Caulfield Repatriation Hospital in Melbourne. The next morning, according to hospital records, Hector inflicted a violent maniacal attack on staff and patients at Caulfield. He was sent to Royal Park Receiving House, the short-term admission section of Royal Park Hospital for the Insane. There's no further detail in the files about this violent attack, which seems to have been out of character. Within a few days, the psychiatrist Dr Godfrey concluded that a new mental condition of acute mania was also due to war service. The REPAT now agreed to pay for the costs of admission to the civilian mental hospital and increase the pension for Hector's family to 100%. The medical superintendent at Royal Park advised that the outlook for the present attack should be fairly good. And indeed, within six weeks, the Royal Park doctors reported that Hector was now quite normal mentally. On Christmas Eve of 1931, when Hector came home from hospital, my father David was seven years old. In an interview that I recorded in 1985 with my father, Dad recalled that when Hector returned to Bungeline, times were hard on the farm, especially for his mother,
6: Nell. This was right at the end of the Depression, and things were very tough. Uh, there had been a drought. And um, at this stage, I think we didn't have any help in the house. I think my mother must be doing it all, which must have been pretty difficult, because the kitchens were old-fashioned. There was no, no electricity, for instance. No woods, the wood stoves. There was no, we didn't have a hot water service. It was fairly primitive, And there's a lot of work, do you?
2: Within a year of Hector's return from hospital to the farm, Nell was dead. My grandfather Hector found himself a single father of two small boys, aged seven and five. When I interviewed Dad, I asked him about his mother's illness.
6: In uh, 1932, when I was seven, my mother uh, became ill and I can remember be- her being in bed and I can remember uh, she went to hospital uh, to have a um, operation for gallstones In September of that year, I remember her going into hospital and when she went into hospital, it must have been that day, my brother and I, my brother Colin, who was two years younger, we went to stay with our grandparents and there was no telephone and the man in my grandfather's place his name was Charles Wolfe was sent on a horse to the the nearest telephone a family called Murphy to ring the hospital Um, I can remember I must have been in a window uh, the house was quite high at the back and I remember looking out the window and seeing him galloping very hard, from that house with the telephone, and shortly afterwards, our grandmother called us into her bedroom, it was early in the morning, and told us that our mother had died during the night, which of course was a terrible shock, and I remember later on sitting outside in the back garden with my brother, I remember saying to him, I wonder how what we're going to do now?
2: It was Dr. Campbell of Sale, the family doctor who operated on Nell. My father believes that his mother Nell died on the operating table because Hector was determined to use a man who was regarded by some as the worst local doctor, simply because they were both ex-servicemen. The special bond between war veterans had a devastating effect on our family. For several months after their mother's death, my father and his younger brother Colin stayed with their grandparents on a neighbouring farm. And then, astonishingly, Hector brought the boys back to live with him at Bungeline. He employed a housekeeper who lived in a small cottage next door. For the first couple of years after Nell died, the housekeeper was a Miss Fallows, remembered by Dad as a marvellous small Englishwoman.
6: But Miss Fallows left. Those aren't happy memories. Uh, you ask what effect my mother had had on us, well, I suppose I rather consciously felt that I'd like to keep up the standards that she was so keen on. She was very particular about the way we dressed and the way we spoke, and she was very keen that we should read a lot. She was a, a keen reader herself, and this, I was told later that when, when she was pregnant, she read voraciously all sorts of... Uh, the classics and so on, and I hope that we'd inherit some of that. <laughs> Actually, that sort of, it was a very modern way of doing things. But I do remember that the week or so before she died, uh, she was reading, my brother and I, age seven and five, uh, David Copperfield, Dickens' David Copperfield. And she'd read it and she'd explain it as she went. And she had a beautiful voice and was very easy to listen to. Um, and I suppose she really did have a great influence. And before my Dad remembered that by the
2: mid-1930s, the contrast with his earlier life before his mother Nell died was very stark.
6: Um, and, uh, the house was getting shabbier and no money was being spent on it. The garden was neglected, drought had killed the garden and my mother had a, had a very good garden. There was no garden. Uh, we still had a car and then eventually the car had an accident. There was no car. Uh, we used a horse and buggy or our horses uh, to get the places.
2: Sometime after Nell's death, Hector began to drink. His young sons dreaded his drunken return from the stock sales in town. One night, Hector didn't return, and the next day Dad and my Uncle Colin discovered him in hospital, recovering from a crash that destroyed the family car and further restricted their lives. Just as my father David was giving up hope of further education, a rural school bus service started in Gippsland. Dad later described that bus service as the miracle that changed his life. But even when my dad and my uncle Colin had got to high school, they still lived isolated lives
6: on the family farm. We lived very enclosed lives and father, by this stage, was getting very withdrawn and silent, didn't socialise at all, didn't go out and... Uh, Quite often we would, we'd ask to birthday parties at other families um, 15, 20 miles away, and um, he wouldn't take us. We just couldn't go. Oh, as we got older, we could ride, but uh, he wouldn't take us. He just withdrew. So it was a fairly tough life. And by the time we were, I was 15, things got worse, because um, I was 15, my brother was 13, and we were informed that no longer could we afford a housekeeper. And I said, What are we going to do? And he said, You'll look after yourselves. And um, he, he, he really had no alternative. I couldn't understand it at the time. I can now understand he was desperately. Well, I imagine um, uh, he had a huge overdraft and uh, no income or very little. So we did the labour as well, helping. Uh, I remember, I suppose it must have been Christmas of 1939 or 40, I've forgotten which one. but. Uh, we, uh, I remember we spent Christmas Day uh, uh, making a haystack and, and cold mutton or something for Christmas dinner. There was no one else to do it. We, we hadn't been invited anywhere for Christmas dinner by anyone else. So three of us had it. Although Hector barely managed as a parent,
2: the fact that he kept his boys with him on the farm in dire circumstances was an impressive achievement. Men in his situation in the 1930s often found a new wife to raise the children and keep the house, or either gave up their children to a female relative or placed them in an institution. Single fathers at this time also had their children taken away on the assumption that childcare needed a woman's touch. But Hector stayed with his boys, even though they largely
6: looked after themselves. Before the night my mother died, she'd written a penciled note to my father... And she must have had some premonition, because it was a simple operation at the time, uh, saying, uh, if anything happens to me, don't let the boys be separated, and uh, suggesting people who should be our guardians. And my father stuck to that. We weren't separated. We were kept together for our childhood.
2: The REPAT files record that after his wife died, Hector just about managed to keep his health together while he raised his sons. As he began to work again, his war pension was reduced to 75%. In 1933, Hector told a REPAT doctor that he'd lost several months' work in the past year due to malaria attacks. But Dr MacDonald, who was the Repatriation Department's medical representative in Sale, believed that Hector was imagining most of his symptoms. The REPAT therefore deleted malaria from Hector's list of conditions accepted as due to war service. But Hector was hospitalised five times during the war for malaria attacks. Hector's pension appeal was now disallowed and he was advised to report to the REPAT local medical officer in Sale, Dr MacDonald, during the next alleged attack. MacDonald believed that my grandfather wanted a continuing diagnosis of malaria to ensure his war pension. When Hector complained in 1939 that he was often unable to work because of recurring malaria symptoms, MacDonald dismissed the complaint and wrote to the Repat that Thompson was mentally not very bright. A decade later, in 1948, Hector's blood was tested and there was no sign of the malaria parasite. Perhaps Hector focused his complaints on malaria because it didn't carry the stigma of mental illness. The documents in Hector's file show that doctors and other officials were increasingly suspicious and unsympathetic. My father's childhood memories suggest that Hector was probably mentally unwell, though it's not clear whether this was due to a physiological condition, with its origin in the war, or was simply due to some form of mental illness or depression. He certainly had good cause to be depressed, While my grandmother Nell was alive, Hector came to rely on her and often succumbed to his ill health. In the 1920s, Hector was unwell, unable to provide for his family and unable to manage the finances or even conduct his pension claim. He almost certainly felt a failure as a husband and father and as a man. Nell's death must have been a terrible blow, yet it also led Hector to take back control of his life. And of his farm and his family, and to work through the worst of his illness for the sake of his sons.
3: A boy found a dream
2: upon a distant shore. In nineteen forty one, Hector Thompson went back to war World War II this time. By then my father David was 17 and wanted to leave the farm. Dad thought that education was his only way out. And in 1941 he used a £100 inheritance from his grandmother to pay for a year at Scotch College in Melbourne, following his father and his grandfather at the school. The money ran out before the year was up, but the headmaster generously let him finish his leaving year so that he could qualify for the Royal Military College at Duntroon. My father never forgot his debt to the school, which had helped him to find a new family in the army. While Dad was away at boarding school, Hector sent my uncle Colin to live with relatives on a nearby farm, then travelled to Melbourne by himself to enlist in the 2nd AIF. In Melbourne, Hector could get away with lying about his age. He wrote that he was 39 instead of 50. About his birthplace... He wrote Glasgow in Scotland instead of Sale in Gippsland. And about his surname, he added a P to the spelling of Thompson. This all meant that his overage status and his repat medical record would not be discovered. The First War may have ruined Hector's health, but he had no grudge with war service itself. The Second World War offered a welcome escape from the hardships of his farm and family life. We have a photo from Cairo which shows him looking content, back among soldier mates and within the security of the army. But the good times were short-lived. While on overseas service, Hector suffered serious petrol burns to his arms and legs in a motor accident. So in October 1943, he was returned to Australia and discharged, ostensibly because he was required for work in the reserved occupation of farming. In 1946, with both of his sons now serving in the Army of Occupation in Japan, Hector sold the family farm at Bunjolein without telling them. And in the following years, they had only limited contact with their father. Hector was now living in boarding houses in Melbourne. Through a family friend, he'd found a job at Goldsboro Mort Wool Store. In 1947, Hector made his first visit to a Melbourne repatriation department clinic since 1931 and a doctor now reported that he looked more than his age. He makes no further appearances in the REPAT files until a stroke in 1955 sent him to the REPAT hospital at Heidelberg. He was now totally incapacitated, and his pension was increased to 100% because the stroke was regarded as a sequel to his accepted brain condition. In 1956, when my father placed Hector on a waiting list for an Anzac hostel, a medical social worker reported that although old Mr Thompson was struggling with his speech, he was able to make himself understood and was a pleasant and cooperative patient. Hector never left Heidelberg Hospital. In 1957, he broke his hip and was reported to be in a poor mental state. In January 1958, Hector's REPAT file ends with death by pneumonia. Age 67 two years before I was born. In 1992, my father wrote me a letter explaining that at war, Hector was a hero and a successful soldier. In the letter, Dad also wrote about Hector's peacetime battles as follows. It was Hector's civilian life, wrote Dad, which was painful and not discussed we make Hector's war illness an excuse for his failings, but he may have failed in any case. Perhaps if Nell had lived, Hector would have been different, but in some ways, Dad told me, had she lived, she would have had a very unhappy life. Perhaps, wrote my father, we were all victims of the war. I can now see that was an astute judgment by a man who felt failed by his father Hector and who idolised the memory of his mother, Nell. But as a boy, my father David never knew the nature or extent of his father's health problems. When dad wrote that letter to me in 1992, he was still not privy to the history which unfolds in the REPAT files. In recent years, my father declined with Alzheimer's disease. He couldn't remember yesterday and spoke very little. But he still recalled that his father was damaged. Over the Christmas of 2012, I told Dad about the REPAT files and I gave him a draft of this story. He spent hours slowly reading each page. His eyes narrowed and creased with pain as he recalled his childhood and said that Hector's physical and mental condition was even worse than I'd described. For a lucid, fragile moment, I think that he too came to a new understanding about the cause and extent of his father's illness and about his mother's tenacity. And he consented to the publication of my new writing about Hector. Dad died in October 2013. I'm so pleased that my research in the Repat archive helped Dad to better understand his parents' tragic lives. When as a young man I sought out old war veterans and their stories, I may have been searching for Hector Thompson all along. But while searching for Hector in the archives, I also discovered my extraordinary grandmother, Nell, who had been a fierce and articulate advocate for her broken husband, like so many other war wives. I learnt about the terrible consequences of war for their sons, my father, David, and his brother, Colin. I finally came to understand the childhood scars which dad suffered as an adult and which shadowed my childhood. By telling this story, I helped dad and all our family give credit to both Hector and Nell for what they managed against the odds. Through this family history, we've started to make peace with the past.
0: Searching for Hector Thompson was written and narrated by Alistair Thompson. The letters of Nell Thompson were read by Glenda Linscott, with other readings by Richard Piper, David Baldwin and Colin Fox. The sound engineer was Matthew Crawford, with production by Hindsight's executive producer, Michelle Rayner. And if you'd like to know how to access repatriation files, then head to our webpage where you can find information and direct links. Just go to abc.net.au slash national and look in the drop-down box for hindsight. That's where, as well, you can find details of Alistair Thompson's updated edition of Anzac Memories, and it's a fantastic read. Coming up, another family story about war, this time told from a very different perspective. This is Hindsight here on RN. I'm Lorena Allum. Today's program is about the deep legacy of war. Official records are so important in our understanding of wartime events and lives, but just as important are the personal, the unofficial records, the family albums and shoeboxes of letters. When German-born Vera Rayson discovered the scrapbook her Australian mother-in-law created during World War II, it opened up new ways of understanding that conflict.
7: One day, I came across a scrapbook which contains little illustrations and stories that were collected and sometimes also written by my mother-in-law, Elizabeth Maud Rayson, when she was still at school. In the middle of the Second World War in 1941, Betty, as she was called, then 18 years old, started to collect verses written by Australian soldiers. Some of the verses appeared in AAF journals and newspapers They tell of danger and hardship, homesickness, loneliness and longing for loved ones. The emotions the soldiers shared with their comrades inspired many who served during the war. Perhaps Betty's reason for collecting the poems was because she felt connected to her two brothers who served overseas.
3: Safe
6: and well. We've heard the Jerry Bomber come screaming overhead, and it isn't very pleasant to be dodging lumps of lead. When we're sitting in the trenches midst the hail of shot and shell, we still have time to send a line. Dear Mum,
5: I'm safe and well. Rats of Tobruk. Swoop low on the British rats, they live in caves like bats, they live in holes like rats. And the little rats stood back and spat at the hateful Huns, rat-a-tat, rat-a-tat, spat lead at the hated Huns.
7: Then there was the poem on Bobby Tobruk, a little poodle the soldiers had adopted. Bobby was seen as one of them. He dodged bullets and dive bombers, but in the end... Bobby got run over by an Arab truck.
6: So we gave him a soldier's funeral. It was all that we could do. For Bobby Tobruk was a cobber of ours and helped us see it through.
7: My own father, who was a senior sergeant in the German army, had fought against the British. He was captured and had spent the last two years of the war as a POW in a British camp in Egypt before he was released in April 1948. I knew my dad had a photo album from those war years. Once, when I was about five years old, I glimpsed inside it. My dad ripped it out of my hands and I never saw it again until he died in 2000. By then I had migrated to Australia and was married to my Aussie husband. Relatives had sent me my dad's belongings together with that photo album. When I looked through it all those years later here in Australia, I cried and forgave him for how he had treated my mum and for what he'd done to me when he finally came back from the war. Today they call it post-traumatic stress disorder. Back then, it wasn't recognised as a condition. People used to say, you are not the only one, just get on with it. Everyone suffered, even the little children like me who were born shortly after the war had ended. For years, I couldn't attend an ANZAC Day commemoration and it was the only day in the Australian calendar where I felt somewhat misplaced, left out and alone. Not anymore, today when the bugle plays my eyes fill with tears and I cry for both sides.
0: Vera Rayson, reading her story of the discovery of a scrapbook her mother-in-law, Betty, created during the Second World War. Vera contributed her story to the Objects Project, being run by us, RN, ABC Open and the Museum of Australia. If you think you've got an object which tells a story about our nation, then jump on board the project too. All the information is on our webpage. Next week, as the Royal Commission into Institutional Abuse continues... We bring you the story of one institution, a home, which you might have passed many times without ever knowing of its existence. For just on 50 years, the Pete Island Mental Hospital was the home of hundreds of boys and men. Its isolated location, an island in the Hawkesbury River between Sydney and Newcastle, played a significant part in shaping a unique story of an institution. We hear from workers and a former resident and his family. That's Island Asylum next week on Hindsight. I'm Lorena Allum. Hope you can join us for Hindsight next Sunday at 1. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your afternoon here on RN.